Chapter Thirty Three of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Thirty Three. At eleven o'clock the next day, I was ready for departure. All stood by the open hall door criticizing Murphy's strapping of my trunks on a hack. Messrs. Digby and Devereux, in black satin scarfs, hung over the step railings. Mrs. Somers, Adelaide and Anne were within the door. Mr. Somers and Ben were already on the walk, waiting for me. So I went through the ceremony of bidding good-bye, a ceremony performed with so much cheerfulness on all sides, that it was an occasion for well-bred merriment and I made my exit as I should have made it in a genteel comedy, but with a bitter feeling of mortification. Because of their artificial, willful, imperturbability, I was forced to oppose them with manners copied after their own. I looked from the carriage window for a last view of my room. The chambermaid was already there, and had thrown open the shutters to let in daylight upon the scene of the most royal dreams I had ever had. The ghost of my individuality would lurk there no longer than the chairs I had placed, the books I had left, the shreds of paper or flowers I had scattered, could be moved or swept away. All the way to Boston the transition to my old condition oppressed me. I felt a dreary disgust at the necessity of resuming relations which had no connection with the sentiment that bound me to Bellum. After we were settled at the Tremont, while watching a sad waiter engaged in the ceremonial of folding napkins like fans, I discovered an intermediate tone of mind, which gave my thoughts a picturesque tinge. My romance, its regrets, and its pleasures, should be set in the frame of the wild sea and shores of Surrey. I invested our isolated house with the dignity of a stage, where the drama, which my thoughts must continually represent, could go on without interruption and remain a secret, I should have no temptation to reveal. Until after the tedious dinner, a complete rainbow of dreams spanned the arc of my brain. Mr. Somers dispersed it by asking Ben to go out on some errand. That was a pretext, I knew by Ben's expression. Therefore, when he had gone, I turned to Mr. Somers and attend to face. First, he circumlocuted. Second, he skirmished. I still waited for what he wished to say, without giving him any aid. He was sure, he said at last, that my visit in his family had convinced me that his children could not vary the destiny imposed upon them by their antecedents, without bringing upon others lamentable consequences. "'Cunning, pa,' I commented internally, "'had I not seen the misery of unequal marriages?' "'As in a glass,' darkly. Doubtless, he went on, I had comprehended the erratic tendency in Ben's character, good and honourable as he was, but impressive and visionary. Did I think so? Quite the contrary. Have you never perceived the method of his visions in an unvarying opposition to those antecedents you boast of? Well, well, well. Money, family, influence— are a ding-dong bell which you must weary of, Mr. Somers, sometimes. 
"'Ben has disappointed me, I must confess that.' "'My sister is eccentric. "'Provided she marries him, the family programme will be changed. "'You must lop him from the family tree.' "'He took up a paper, bowed to me with an unvexed air, "'and read a column or so. "'It may be absurd.' and he looked over his spectacle-tops, as if he had found the remark in his paper, "'For parents to oppose the marriages their children choose to make, and I beg you to understand that I may oppose, not resist, Ben. You know very well,' and he dropped the paper in a burst of irritation and candour, "'that the devil will be to pay with Mrs. Somers, who has a right of dictation in the affair. She does not suspect it. I must say that Ben is mistaking himself again.' "'I mean, I think so.' "'I looked upon him with a more friendly countenance. "'The one rude word he had spoken had a wonderful effect, "'after the surprise of it was over. "'The real eyes appeared in his face, "'and a truthful accent pervaded his voice. "'I think he was beginning to think "'that he might confide his perplexities to me on other subjects "'when Ben returned. "'As it was,' A friendly feeling had been established between us. He said, in a confidential tone to Ben, as if we were partners in some guilty secret, "'You must mention it to your mother. Indeed, you must.' "'You have been speaking with Cassandra in reference to her sister,' he answered indifferently. Mr. Somers was chilled in his attempt at a mutual confidence. "'Can you raise money if Desmond should marry?' asked Ben. "'Enough for both of us?' "'Desmond, he will never marry. "'It is certainly possible. "'You know how I am clogged.' "'I ran for some ice-water, "'and when the waiter brought it, "'said that it was time to retire. "'Now,' said Mr. Somers, "'I shall give you just such a breakfast "'as will enable you to travel well. "'A beefsteak and old bread made into toast. "'Don't drink that ice-water. "'Take some wine.' I set the glass of ice-water down, and declined the wine. Ben elevated his eyebrows, and asked, "'What time shall I get up, sir?' "'I will call you, so you may sleep untroubled.' He opened the door, and bade me an affectionate good-night. "'The coach is ready,' a waiter announced, as we finished our breakfast. "'We are ready,' said Mr. Somers. "'I have ordered a packet of sandwiches for you—beef, not ham-sandwiches.' "'and here is a flask of wine mixed with water.' "'I thanked him, and tied my bonnet. "'Here is a note, also,' opening his pocket-book and extricating it, "'for your father. "'It contains our apologies for not accompanying you, "'and one or two allusions.' "'Making an attempt to wink at Ben, which failed, "'his eyes being unused to such an undignified style of humour. "'He excused himself from going to the station "'on account of the morning air, and Ben and I proceeded.' In the passage, the waiter met us with a paper box. For you, miss, a florist's boy just left it. I opened it in the coach, and seeing flowers, was about to take them out to show Ben, when I caught sight of the ribbon which tied them, a piece of one of my collar-knots I had not missed. Of course the flowers came from Desmond, and half the ribbon was in his possession. The ends were jagged, as if it had been divided with a knife. Instead of taking out the flowers, I showed him the box. "'What a curious bouquet,' he said. 
In the cars he put into my hand a jewel-box and a thick letter for Verry, kissed me, and was out of sight. No vestige but these flowers, uncovering them again. In my room in Surrey I will take you out. And I shut the box. The clanking of the car-wheels revolved through my head in rhythm, excluding thought for miles. Then I looked out at the flying sky. It was almost May. The day was mild and fair. In the hollows the young grass spread over the earth like a smooth cloth. Over the hills and unsheltered fields the old grass lay like coarse mats. A few birds roved the air in anxiety, for the time of love was at hand, and their nests were not finished. By twelve I arrived at the town where the railroad branched in a direction opposite the road to Surrey, and where a stage was waiting for its complement of passengers from the cars. I was the only lady aboard, as one of the passengers intelligently remarked, when we started. They were desirable companions, for they were gruff to each other and silent to me. We rode several miles in a state of unadjustment, and then yielded to the sedative qualities of a stagecoach. I lunched on my sandwiches, thanking Mr. Somers for his forethought, though I should have preferred them of ham instead of beef. When I took a sip from my flask, two men looked surprised, and spat vehemently out of the windows. I offered it to them. They refused it, saying they had what was needful at the depot saloon, conducted on the strictest temperance principles. Those principles are cruel, provided travellers ever have colic or diversion to depot tea and coffee, I said. There was silence for the space of fifteen minutes. Then one of them turned and said, "'You have a good head, ma'am.' "'Too good?' "'Forgetful, maybe.' I bowed, not wishing to prolong the conversation. "'Your circulation is too rapid,' he continued. The man on the seat with him now turned round, and examining me informed me that electricity would be first-rate for me. "'Shoo!' he replied. "'It's a humbug.' I was forgotten in the discussion which followed, and which lasted till our arrival at a village where one of them resided. He left, telling us he was a natural bone-setter. One by one the passengers left the stage, and for the last five miles I was alone. I beguiled the time by elaborating a multitude of trivial opinions, suggested by objects I saw along the roadside, till the old and new church spires of Surrey came in sight, and the curving lines at either end of the ascending shores. We reached the point in the north road, where the ground began its descent to the sea, and I hung from the window to see all the village roofs humble before it. The streets and dwellings looked as insignificant as those of a toy village. I perceived no movement in it, heard no hum of life. At a crossroad, which would take the stage into the village without its passing our house, a whim possessed me. I would surprise him at home and go in at the back door while they were expecting to hear the stage. The driver let me out, and I stood in the road till he was out of sight. A breeze blew round me, penetrating, but silent. The fields and the distant houses which dotted them were asleep in the pale sunshine, undisturbed by it. The crows cawed and flew over the eastern woods. I walked slowly. The road was deserted. Mrs. Grossman's house was the only one I must pass, 
Its shutters were closed, and the yard was empty. As I drew near home, a violent haste grew upon me, yet my feet seemed to impede my progress. They were like lead. I impelled myself along, as in a dream. Under the protection of our orchard wall, I turned my merino mantle, which was lined with an indefinite colour, spread my veil over my bonnet, and bent my shoulders, and passed down the carriage drive by the dining-room windows into the stable-yard. The rays of sunset struck the lantern panes in the lighthouse, and gave the atmosphere a yellow stain. The pigeons were skimming up and down the roof of the wood-house, and cooing round the horses that were in the yard. A boy was driving cows into the shed, whistling a lively air. He suspended it when he saw me, but I shook my finger at him, and ran in. Slipping into the side hall, I dropped my bonnet and shawl, and listened at the door for the familiar voices. Mother must be there, as was her wont, and Aunt Merce. Of all them, perhaps, for I had seen nobody on my way. There was no talking within. The last sunset ray struck on my hand its yellow shade, through the fan-light, and faded before I opened the door. I was arrested on the threshold by a silence which rushed upon me, clutching me in a suffocating embrace. Mother was in her chair by the fire, which was out, for the brands were black, and one had fallen close to her feet. A white flannel shawl covered her shoulders. Her chin rested on her breast. "'She is ill and has dropped asleep,' I thought, thrusting my hands out, through this terrible silence, to break her slumber, and looked at the clock. It was near seven. A door slammed, somewhere upstairs, so loud it made me jump. But she did not wake. I went toward her, confused, and stumbling against the table which was between us, but reached her at last. Oh, I knew it. She was dead. People must die, even in their chairs, alone. What difference did it make how? An empty cup was in her lap, bottom up. I set it carefully on the mantel-shelf above her head. Her handkerchief was crumpled in her nerveless hand. I drew it away and thrust it into my bosom. My gloves tightened my hands as I tried to pull them off, and was tugging at them, when a door opened, and Veronica came in. "'She is dead,' I said. "'I can't get them off.' "'It is false,' and she staggered backward, with her hand on her heart, till she fell against the wall. I do not know how long we remained so, but I became aware of a great confusion, cries and exclamations, people were running in and out, Fanny rolled on the floor in hysterics. "'Get up,' I said. "'I can't move. Help me. Where did Verry go?' She got up and pulled me along. I saw father raise mother in his arms. The dreadful sight of her swaying arms and drooping head made me lose my breath. But Veronica forced me to endurance by clinging to me and dragging me out of the room and upstairs. She turned the key of the glass door at the head of the passage, not letting go of me. I took her by the arms, placed her in a chair, and closing my window curtains, sat down beside her in the dark. "'Where will they carry her?' she asked, shuddering, and putting her fingers in her ears. "'How the water splashes on the beach! 
Is the tide coming in? She was appalled by the physical horror of death, and asked me incessant questions. Let us keep her away from the grave, she said. I could not answer, or hear her at last, for sleep overpowered me. I struggled against it in vain. It seemed the greatest good. Let death and judgment come. I must sleep. I threw myself on my bed, and the touch of the pillow sealed my eyes. I started from a dream about something that happened when I was a little child. "'Veronica, are you here?' "'Mother is dead,' she answered. A mighty anguish filled my breast. "'Mother! Her goodness and beauty, her pure heart, her simplicity, I felt them all. I pitied her dead, because she would never know how I valued her.' Veronica shed no tears, but sighed heavily. "'Duty!' sounded through her sighs. "'Very. Shall I take care of you? I think I can.' She shook her head, but presently she stretched her hands in search of my face, kissed it, and answered, "'Perhaps. You must go to your own room and rest. Can you keep everybody from me?' "'I will try.' Opening her window, she looked out over the earth wistfully, and at the sky— thickly strewn with stars, which revealed her face. We heard somebody coming up the back stairs. "'Temperance,' said Very. "'Are you in the dark, girls?' she asked, wringing her hands, when she had put down her lamp. "'What an awful providence!' She looked with a painful anxiety at Veronica. "'It is all providence, Temperance, whether we are alive or dead,' I said. Let us let Providence alone. What did I ever leave her for? She wasn't fit to take care of herself. Why, Cassandra Morganson, you haven't got off all your things yet, and what's this sticking out of your bosom? It is her handkerchief. I kissed it, and now Very began to weep over it, begging me for it. I gave it up to her. It will kill your father. I had not thought of him. "'It's most nine o'clock. Safrani Beals is here. She lays out beautifully.' "'No, no, don't let anybody touch her!' shrieked Very. "'No, they shan't. Come into the kitchen. You must have something to eat.' I was faint from the want of food, and when Temperance prepared us something I ate heartily. Veronica drank a little milk, but would taste nothing. Aunt Merce, who had been out to tea, Temperance said, came into the kitchen— "'My poor girl, I have not seen you,' embracing me, half blind with crying. "'How pale you are! How sunken! Keep up as well as you can. I little thought that the worthless one of us, too, would be left to suffer. Go to your father, as soon as possible.' "'Drink this tea right now, Mercy,' said Temperance, holding a cup before her. "'There isn't much to eat in the house, of all times in the world to be without good victuals. What could Hepsy have meant?' "'Poor old soul!' "'Aunt Merce replied. "'She is quite broken. "'Fanny had to help her upstairs.' "'The kitchen door opened, "'and Temperance's husband, Abram, came in. "'Good Lord!' she said in an irate voice. "'Have you come too? "'Did you think I couldn't get home to get your breakfast?' "'She hung the kettle on the fire again, "'muttering too low for him to hear. "'Some folks could be spared better than other folks.' "'Abram shoved back his hat. 
the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But she is a dreadful loss to the poor. There's my poor boy whose clothes—' "'Ain't he the beat'em of all the men that ye ever see?' broke in temperance, taking to him a large piece of pie, which he took with a short laugh, and sat down to eat. I could not help exchanging a look with Aunt Merce. We both laughed. Veronica, lost in reverie, paid no attention to anything about her. I saw that temperance suffered. She was perplexed and irritated. "'Let Abram stay if he likes,' I whispered to her, "'and be sure to stay yourself, for you are needed.' She brightened with an expression of gratitude. "'He is a nuisance,' she whispered back. "'But as I made a fool of myself, I must be punished according to my folly. "'I'll stay, you may depend. "'I'll do everything for you. "'I vow I am mad that I ever went away.' "'Have the neighbours gone?' I asked. "'There's a couple or so round, and will be, you know.' I'll take Verry to bed, and sleep on the floor by her. You go to your father. He was in their bedroom, on the bed. She was lying on a frame of wood, covered with canvas, a kind of bed which went from house to house in Surrey on occasions of sickness or death. "'Our last night together has passed,' he said in a tremulous voice, while scanty tears fell from his seared eyes. "'The space between then and now—' when her arm was round me, when she slept beside me, when I woke from a bad dream and she talked gently close to my face, till I slept again, is so narrow that I recall it with a sense of reality which agonizes me. It is so immeasurable when I see her there, there, that I am crushed. If I had any thought of speaking to him, it was gone, and I must go too. With the hands folded across her breast, where I also had slept? Were the blue eyes closed that had watched me there? I should never see. A shroud covered her from all eyes but his now. Till I closed the door upon him, I looked my last farewell. An elderly woman met me as I was going upstairs, and offered me a small packet. It was her hair. It was very long she said. I tried in vain to thank her. "'I will place it in a drawer for you,' she said kindly. End of chapter 33